Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, writer Gretchen Rubin has created a cottage industry of sorts concerning habits, happiness, and human nature. She's the author of the bestsellers The Happiness Project and Happier at Home. Her latest book is Better Than Before, What I Learned About Making and Breaking Habits to Sleep More, Quit Sugar, Procrastinate Less, and generally build a happier life. The New York Times called her, quote, the queen of the self-help memoir. She prefers the term self-helpful. Her website sums up one tenet of her philosophy this way, quote, habits are the invisible architecture of a happy life, and when we change our habits, we change our lives. The secret to changing a habit? First, we must know ourselves, so we can suit our habits to our own nature. Rubin is a graduate of Yale and Yale Law School, where she was editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal. She went on to clerk for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Around that time, she says she had an epiphany, realizing she wanted to be a writer. When she's not writing best-selling books, Rubin is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and three children's book reading groups, presumably because that makes her happy. Anna Tatashev recorded this talk at the Seattle Public Library Central Library on January 19, 2016. Here, SPL librarian Ann Glusker introduces Gretchen Rubin. We're so thrilled to have you. Um, Gretchen Rubin is the author of several books, including the blockbuster New York Times bestsellers, Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, and Happier at Home. She has an enormous readership, both in print and online, and her books have sold more than 2 million copies worldwide in more than 30 languages. On her popular weekly podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, she discusses good habits and happiness with her sister, Elizabeth Kraft. They've been called the click and clack of podcasters. (laughs) The podcast hit number six on iTunes the first day it launched, It ranks in the top 1% of podcasts and was listed in Best Podcasts of 2015 by iTunes and Vulture. Welcome, Gretchen Rubin. Well, I am so happy to be here because, first of all, I love Seattle, but even more than Seattle, I love a library. My whole life I have been attracted to libraries. And man, this is a library. I got the, br- I got the crazy quick tour. It's monumental. It's so imaginative. I love it. And I love coming to libraries because there is something for everybody in a library, from the littlest child to the most grown-up adult, for people who are learning English for the first time, to people doing scholarly research. So I'm so happy that you're here supporting your local library because it's so important. Um, So I'm going to talk about how I got drawn to the subject of habits, and then I'm going to throw out some ideas about some surprising things about habits for you to think about if you're thinking about how to change your habit, or what's often a lot more fun to think about, how to change somebody else's habit, Um, (laughs) and, um, and then we'll have time for questions and answers, and that's always my favorite part, so be thinking of your questions. Now, I started thinking about habits because for years I was writing and researching and talking to people about happiness. And I began to notice a pattern, which was when I would talk to people about a big happiness challenge they were facing, it often, at its core, was a problem with a habit. So somebody would say, well, my problem is that I'm exhausted all the time. Well, that's about the habit of getting enough sleep. Or somebody would say, well, my problem is that I really want to get back into playing guitar, but I somehow never get around to it. Well, that's about the habit of making consistent progress. So I became more and more preoccupied with the idea of how we can use habits to become happier, healthier, and more productive. And then I had this casual lunch with a friend, and she said something that made me obsessed with habits. So I am admittedly a little bit of a habits bore, and I will quiz people relentlessly about their habits. So I was asking her about her habits, and she said, well, here's the thing. I would really like to get back into the habit of exercise. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team, and I never missed track practice. But I can't go running now. Why? Well, why? Same person, same behavior. At one time, it was effortless. Now she can't do it. And I became determined to solve the puzzle of habits. And as I got into it, I began to notice these questions that kept 
bothering me that no one else ever seemed to talk about. For instance, with habits, it's understandable why, maybe why we have trouble forming a habit of doing something that we don't like to do. But just as often you hear people complain about the fact that they can't form the habit of something they love to do. Why is it that we're so unmoved by the dire consequences of our habits? Uh, research suggests that up to 50% of American adults do not take prescription medication for a chronic health condition. Why is it that habits sometimes form overnight, and then sometimes they vanish without warning? Um, why is it that most successful dieters gain all the weight back? Um, so I really wanted to figure this out. But before I started, there were these threshold questions about habits that I felt like I had to answer, and I'm sure you've thought about them yourself. So the first is, okay, we've all got a lot on our plate. Why spend any time or energy thinking about habits? Well, it turns out that habits are like the invisible architecture of everyday life. Research shows that about 40% of our everyday existence is shaped by habits. So if we have habits that work for us, we are much more likely to be happier, healthier, and more productive. Then, okay, well, what is a habit? Well, sometimes people talk about frequency or repetition or the familiarity of cues around a behavior, but I have really come to believe that the crucial aspect about a habit is decision-making, or really the lack of decision-making. Habits are freeing and energizing because they get us out of the draining, difficult business of making decisions and using our self-control, which is hard. I don't decide to get up at 6 a.m. I don't decide to skip dessert. I made those decisions a long time ago. These are habits that just are on automatic pilot. And you know, sometimes when I tell people that I'm working on habits, they'll say something like, well, that's great, because I want to go through my day making healthy choices. And I'm like, no, you don't. Because every choice is the opportunity to make the wrong choice. Choose once. Then stop choosing. You don't decide to wear your seatbelt. You don't decide to brush your teeth. Put it on an automatic pilot, make it into a habit, and then you don't have to fuss with it. So then the question, of course, is the big question, which is, how do you change your habits? And there is no shortage of expert advice, right? What have we heard? Uh, do it first thing in the morning. Start small. Give yourself a cheat day. Do it for 30 days. But the fact is, all these strategies work sometimes for some people, but they don't work all the time for everyone. And what I found is that there are actually 21 different strategies that we can use to make or break our habits. And you use the same ones, whether you're making them or breaking them, so that doesn't matter. And sometimes people seem to get a little panicky when I say they're 21, like, oh my gosh, that's too many, I can't handle it. But it's actually good, because what I found is that some of these strategies work very well for some people and not at all for others. Some strategies are available to us at some times of our lives and not at other times of our lives. So you want to have a lot to choose from so that you can pick the ones that are going to work for you. Because that is the crucial step that I think so many people skip when they try to change their habits. Is that the most important thing to think about when you're trying to change a habit is what is true about you? How can you shape the habit that is going to set you up for success? And I think a lot of times when people fail, when they accuse themselves of being lazy or not having any willpower, it's because they've set up a habit in a way that's not right for them. It might work for somebody else, it's not right for them. So here's a good example. Morning people and night people. This is a real thing. Um, I'm a morning person and I used to think everybody could be a morning person if they would just go to bed on time. No. It turns out this is a real thing. It's largely genetically determined and also a function of age. And the fact is, night people are just at their most productive and creative and energetic later in the day than morning people. And I had a friend who was just the most hardcore night person. I mean, he could barely, barely, barely make it into work on time. And uh, he looked me in the eye and said, this year my New Year's resolution is to get up early and go for a run every morning before work. And I was like, have you met yourself? because no, you won't, right? Like, that isn't going to work for him. Now, I know why it makes sense on paper. Like, I've seen all the evidence for it. And it would work for me, because I'm a morning person. How many people here are morning people? How many people here are night people? Right? The same things aren't going to work. It's a big number. It's a big, big different group. 
So we have to think about what is true for ourselves. So now I'm going to talk about some strategies that really surprised me, things that I did not expect to see when I was, when I was doing my research. Um, and one of them is, again, a big, different, a big distinction among people about how they most fruitfully shape their habits. So this is the strategy of abstaining. This is a strategy that works extremely well for some people. It does not work at all for other people. You must decide if you are an abstainer or a moderator. Now, I realized that I was an abstainer when I was reading something um, said by Samuel Johnson, the 18th century English essayist. He's one of my favorite writers. And so Johnson goes into a party, and someone asks him if he will take a little wine. And he says, I can't take a little. Abstinence is as easy to me as temperance would be difficult. Translation, I can have none, but I can't have a little. And when I read that, I thought, that's me. I can have no cookies, or I can have seven cookies. I can't have one cookie. I have never had half a dish of ice cream in my life. I'm an all-or-nothing kind of person. I can say no, I can have none, but once I start, I'm going all the way. That is the abstainer way, all-or-nothing. But we find it pretty easy to have none, to give it up altogether. Now, moderators, by contrast, get very panicky or rebellious if they're told they can never have something. They do better when they have a little bit, when they have something sometimes. And when I understood the moderator perspective, it explained to me a mystery that had haunted me my whole life, which is, what is up with those people who keep a bar of fine chocolate in their dust drawer, and once a day they have one square of fine chocolate? Because for me, it would be the whole day. Two, three, now, later, it's my birthday, it's raining, okay, you know? I'm gonna eat that whole bar of chocolate, and it's gonna completely preoccupy me until it's gone. But for a moderator, they do better when they have a little bit. And this isn't just true about food. Um, things like technology, abstainer moderator. My sister had to give up Candy Crush because she said it was actually affecting her career. Um, I know a guy who said it took him an extra year to write his PhD thesis because of World of Warcraft. So, you know, and so this is just for some people, it's easier to have none. So how many people based on this description would call themselves abstainers? And how many people would call themselves moderators? Right? So here you see the roots of many a marital fight and office conflict. Because one person walks in with a giant box of peanut brittle, and the other person says, why did you bring in this box of candy? You know I'm gonna eat the whole thing today. And the other person says, you just need to learn how to manage yourself better. And, you know, it goes from there. Um, and it, because the fact is, it's not that one person's right and one person's wrong. They're both ways of handling a strong temptation but you have to do it the way that's right for you. Abstainers do not succeed with moderation. Moderators do not do well when they try to abstain. So it's just a question of figuring out what works for you and figuring out how to create a situation where everyone can thrive. Now the next strategy, I have to say, like I, I have 21 strategies, they're all powerful, they're all effective, I love them all. This is the most fun strategy. And that is the strategy of treats. And we all need to give ourselves lots and lots of treats. Now, a treat is not the same thing as a reward. A reward is something that you have to earn. You must justify giving yourself a reward. But a treat you get just because you want it. And treats are important because when we give more to ourselves, we can ask more from ourselves. And when we give ourselves treats, our self-command rises. And what you want in life is a lot of self-command, especially when you're trying to change your habits because you need self-command to maintain those good habits. And they, in studies, they showed this because they would give people a, a treat in the form of either a little gift or having them watch a funny video, and people's self-command would rise. And so you're like a cell phone that needs to be charged into the wall. The treat makes, helps make you feel comforted and cared for and energized. Um, and so, but a lot of people don't have a good idea of what their healthy treats would be. So you want to have a big menu in your mind. So when you get that feeling, I need it, I want it, I deserve it, you can give yourself a healthy treat. Um, I know a guy who loves new music, and so every Tuesday he buys new music when Amazon, I mean, when um, iTunes releases new music. Um, I have a friend who 
She has to get her whole family out the door in the morning, so she gets dressed for work, gets them out the door, and then goes back to bed fully dressed. She's like, it's the best part of my day. Um, uh, you know, I have a podcast, and mentioned um, with my sister, and a lot of people have told me they use podcasts as treats, or like a favorite television show you might never watch until you're like, ooh, I need a treat. I'm going to let myself watch an episode of The Office. Um, or... Uh, Learning a magic trick, coloring in an adult coloring book, you know, whatever is the treat for you. My husband does crossword puzzles on his iPad. Um, but you want to have these healthy treats so that when you get that feeling that you need it, you don't turn to an unhealthy treat. Because we don't want to do something to make ourselves feel better that just ends up making us feel worse. And what are the three big unhealthy treats? I bet you can guess. Food and drink, shopping, screen time. These can all be healthy treats for some people, but often they are unhealthy treats. And so you want to know yourself and say, mm, am I going to feel good about this, or is this really not going to be a healthy treat that's going to make me feel good over the long term? Now, the next thing that, about habits that really surprised me, I have to admit, I really was so surprised by this. It was so counterintuitive to me that for a long time I just kept ignoring the evidence that I saw for it because I, it just didn't make sense. And um, as I said, I'm this habits bore, and so I'm constantly asking people about their habits. And I kept noticing that I was hearing exactly the same story from people. Over and over, they would tell me the same story in practically the same words, like to the point that it was a little creepy. Like, what's going on here? Um, and then most memorably, when I really decided I had to grapple with it was when I was at my college reunion talking to Brad. And so Brad tells me the story that I'd heard many times. Well, I wanted to get into the habit of exercise, so I decided I would train for the marathon. So I trained for the marathon, and I loved training for the marathon, and I ran the marathon, and it was amazing. And then I took off those rest days that they tell you to take after you run the marathon, and I haven't run since. I had heard that from several people specifically about the marathon. But then I realized I'd also heard a lot of stories very analogous. Oh, I was so excited because I gave up sugar for Lent, and I thought, finally, I've quit sugar, but now I eat more sugar than ever. Oh, my friends and I have been doing a 30-day yoga challenge. It was amazing. We're doing so much yoga, but now I don't do any yoga. Okay, because this is why it's counterintuitive to me. Because what I would have predicted is I would have said, oh, this is great because hitting these goals is going to be great for people's habits. They're going to have these accomplishments. They're going to have these sense of achievements. This is going to energize them. This is going to make them feel all the more committed to these healthy habits. Right? Doesn't that sound like it makes sense? But that's not what was happening, right? It was like just the opposite was happening. It was like suddenly their habits were shutting off. And I realized what had happened to these people is they had reached their goal. They had hit a finish line. And when you hit a finish line, you are finished. No more. No more running. No more giving up sugar. No more yoga. And what I figured out is that when we're trying to change our habits, it's not about achieving a specific goal. It's not about reaching that finish line. It's about doing something indefinitely. It's not about running the marathon. It's about exercising for years and years to come. Now, you don't want to think about that too hard because that can get a little scary, so just like let that fade into the distance. What it's more helpful to think about is a milestone. It's an exciting, thrilling milestone to run the marathon, but it's just one of many milestones that we will pass in a lifetime of exercise. Um, because once you finish, you have to start over, and starting over is often harder than starting. And I think this explains, it's one of the reasons, I think there are many reasons that diets fail, but one of the reasons that diets fail is because they fall into this pattern. So somebody says, okay, I'm, I weigh 180 pounds, my goal is to weigh 140 pounds, Oh, good, I lost my goal weight of 40 pounds. I'm at my goal. Now I can go back to eating normally. So you start eating normally and go right back to where you were before, and maybe you blow right past it. Because it's not about hitting that goal. It's about changing the habit forever. And so milestones are what's important. Now, the next thing I want to mention, and I'll just mention it briefly because I really don't even, can't even really understand why it matters so much, except that I can feel that it matters to me, and everybody else, a lot of people say, not everybody, um, a lot of people say that it's the truth for them too, which is, it's surprising to me the degree to which, for most people, outer order contributes to inner calm more than it should. 
because we can all agree that in the context of a happy, healthy, productive life, something like a crowded coat closet or an overflowing in-basket is trivial. And yet over and over, I find myself, and other people tell me that the same is true for them, that getting control over the stuff of life gives us a feeling of being more in control generally. And if it's an illusion, it's a helpful illusion. Um, there's just something about getting rid of things you don't use or don't want, putting things in their proper places, getting rid of trash, clearing off space, making room that makes people feel more in self-command, more positive, more energetic. I had a friend who said to me, you know, I finally cleaned out my fridge, and now I know I can switch careers. I knew exactly how that felt. Um, I talked to a woman who her New Year's uh, habit, tradition, was to throw away everything in her fridge. The mustard, the pickles, everything, to start clean. And I would never do that myself, but I could understand that, that, like, that just get it all out of the way, it just feels freeing. So here's a habit to think about um, if, you're, if you battle this, because maintaining order is a constant battle. Um, is anything you can do in less than a minute do without delay? Because if you can hang up your coat or put a mug in the dishwasher or uh, print out a document and file it, then you don't have that stuff on the scum, that scum on the surface of life. Those, those things just go away because they're inconsequential on their own, but they can make us feel weighed down and paralyzed. But I have to say, I've been talking to people about happiness and habits for years, and the one habit that people most often will come up to me and specifically mention as the habit that has made them feel happier and I'm not saying this is the most significant thing you could do in your life, but it is the thing that people most often mention specifically, is the habit of making your bed. How many people here regularly make their bed? How many people here make their bed in a hotel room on the morning they check out? All right, yes, we will talk. Um, there's something about it. I mean, the head of the Navy SEALs gave a talk when he talked about the importance of making your bed to the SEALs. There's something about making your bed. That little bit of order makes people feel calmer, more full of possibility. It doesn't really make sense. Like, why does it matter? And yet, over and over, people say, eh, it kind of does matter. Um, okay, and the final thing I'm going to talk about, and then we'll have questions, is what I call the four tendencies. And they say there are two kinds of people in the world, the kind of people who like to divide people into two kinds of people and the kind of people who don't, and I am the kind of people who does. Um, and so with this, I divided all of humanity into four categories. And I have to say that of everything that I have ever done in my life, any kind of intellectual exercise or challenge, this was the most difficult. To understand the pattern of behavior, to see how all the pieces fit together, um, just about melted my brain. Um, but I'm so excited about this, this framework. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain it to you the four categories. And then I'm going to go through and, and go through them again and ask you to raise your hand, because I think it'll be really interesting to see who's here tonight, like what, how it, it uh, the range of the four tendencies that, we're, that are here. And then I'll throw out some thoughts that might be helpful to you as you're thinking about managing yourself or managing other people um, as related to their tendencies. Because knowing a person's tendency, it turns out, gives you a lot of really valuable information about how to engage with them more effectively or how to manage yourself. Um, so just a few words before I get started is first of all I will warn you it sounds really boring when I start so just stay with me because I promise it gets juicy you'll be interested but just hang in there um, and also you know I sometimes get the sense that people want to figure out what's the best tendency and then like figure out how to like slot themselves in there but this is about self-knowledge be honest with yourself all of these all these categories include people who are big successes and also big losers so, you know, just be honest. Um, so here we go. Upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. And this has to do with how you meet an expectation. Now, we have outer expectations, like a work deadline or a request from a sweetheart, or inner expectations, our own inner desire to keep a New Year's resolution our own inner desire to get back into yoga. Upholders. Upholders re readily meet outer and inner expectations alike. So they meet the work deadline, they keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. 
They want to know what is expected of them and to meet those expectations. But their expectations for themselves are just as important. Next, questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They hate anything arbitrary or inefficient. They want information and justifications. Their first question is like, why am I listening to you anyway? Um, so in a sense, they make everything an inner expectation because they have to buy in. They have to endorse it in order to follow through with it. Next, obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So this explains the question of my friend on the, tr on the track team, right? Because when she had a, a team and a coach waiting for her, she had no trouble showing up. But when it was just her inner desire to go running for herself, she struggled. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it in their own way. If you ask or tell them to do something, they are very likely to resist. They don't even want to tell themselves what to do. So let's go through them. So first, upholder. Upholders readily meet outer and inner alike. My hand is up because that's my tendency, okay? Outer and inner alike. Next, questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They hate anything inefficient or arbitrary. Okay. Next, obligers. Obligers readily meet outer. They struggle to meet inner. That's my friend on the track team. Okay. Next, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. Okay. And who, okay. One clue is if you're thinking to yourself, I question the validity of your framework, you're probably a questioner. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and um, who did not find themselves in this framework? Who felt like, oh, this just does not describe me? Okay, well, that's pretty good. Um, okay. Huh? Okay, I'll get to that. So the question is, what if you found yourself in two? Let me first talk about how the, the, how the, the balance is, and then I'll talk about that. So what we saw here was absolutely consistent with what I see over and over and over again, which is that rebel, tiny tendency. Very few people are rebels. It's a conspicuous tendency, but it's a small tendency. What came as a real shock to me when I came up with this framework was that my tendency, upholder tendency, also very small. Bigger than rebel, not that big. Not that many people are upholders. Now, this was, this was a surprise to me because when I was going about writing this book, I, I figured I was pretty average. It turns out I'm on the freaky fringe. Which, by the way, came as a surprise to no one but me that I'm an extreme personality. <laughs> Not that many people are rebels or upholders. Those are the two poles. Most people, overwhelmingly, are questioners or obligers. I think obliger is a slightly larger tendency. I think that is the biggest tendency. Biggest number of people are obligers. Questioner, also very big. And this has huge implications if you're a doctor or a teacher or a device manufacturer, because you've got to think, most of the people that I'm going to be talking to are going to be either questioners or obligers. So, so here are some um, general ob observations about them. Okay, so one of them is, can you find yourself in two? To my observation and from my conclusions, I think these are really deep, pervasive aspects of our personality. They don't change depending on whether at work, at home. They don't change over our lifetime, though it can be very difficult to tell what a child is. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard, because children aren't autonomous in the way that adults are. Um, you really aren't a mix. And, and sometimes people think they're a mix because, but when I drill them, well, as, I, as, I, as I, I grill them as I will, um, it turns out that they're not. So for instance, one person said to me, well, the thing is, when I'm at work, I'm an upholder. But with myself, I'm a rebel. I'm like, well, that's what an obliger is, right? Because they always are meeting external expectations, but they struggle to meet their inner. Yes, you're 100% obliger. Or somebody said, I was talking to a high school class, um, and uh, a high school student said to me, well, no, See, when I'm talking to the, a teacher that I respect, I'll do what they tell me, like an upholder. But if I don't respect them, then I won't do it at all, like a rebel. And I said, that's a 100% questioner, because the questioner's first question is, why am I listening to you anyway? And if you, don't, if you don't merit the respect of a questioner, you're going to find it very hard to get them to do what you want them to do, because their first question is, do I have any faith in your judgment? Do I believe in what you're telling me to do? Um, and so I think that people really aren't mixes, generally. Um, I don't think these are, you know, a, a, you know, birth order or religious upbringing or gender. Um, these are just big, um, basic elements of our personality. Now, that being said, it's a tiny slice of our personality. 
And so people look very different. You know, an, one upholder and, and I could look very different from each other because it's, it's also mixed in with every other aspect of our personality. So how considerate are you? A highly considerate, loving rebel is going to be a very different kind of person than a rebel who really doesn't care about other people's feelings. Um, how smart are you? How ambitious are you? How creative are you? How anxious are you? How controlling are you? All these things are going to mix up together. So you can have people who have the same tendencies who look very different from each other. But when you go down to that key question, which is how do they respond to an expectation, you will see at that core that they will, their, their impulses will be the same. Their knee-jerk reactions will be the same. So now I'm going to just throw out a few things for you to think about as you move through your day or as you manage yourself with the four tendencies. So upholders, upholders are pretty easy in terms of work at home because they're going to meet outer and inner expectations alike. So that's good. But like all the tendencies, the strengths of the tendency are also the weakness of the tendency. And one of the things that you, I can say as an upholder is that upholders can be pretty hard on other people. Um, because they find it pretty easy to meet expectations, outer and inner alike. And then when other people, it's like, you keep saying you're going to exercise. Stop talking about it. Just do it already. Like, what is your problem, you know? Um, I asked people what the motto of the tendency should be, and um, the, one of the, somebody suggested that the motto for upholder was, why didn't you just do it the way I told you to? <laughs> um, and so they can be kind of judgmental. I have to say I have much more empathy for other people now that I understand the tendencies because I understand that most people are not like me. And if you are an upholder or you're around an upholder, one very striking pattern that you want to watch out for is tightening. For a lot of people, when they're keeping a habit or they're following a pattern, um, things can be loose, or they might get looser over time. For upholders, these things often become tighter. So like, I am this crazy low-carb person. And when I started eating low-carb, I, I was pretty diligent about following it. Over time, I have become much more faithful to being low-carb. It has tightened on me. Now, sometimes this can be good, but this can also become very constrictive to upholders, so we actually have to watch out for that. And you know, we're often accused of being rigid and inflexible. Now, a lot of times we think that's fine, because we're like, well, I want to go for a run, deal with it. Um, but it can become a problem. So that's something that upholders need to watch out is for this tightening and how it can have very negative consequences for themselves and for other people. Then questioners. Now, questioners are great to have around because, especially in organizations, because they're the ones who keep everything efficient and keep people from wasting time and doing work that's not purposeful. Because they're the ones who are saying, why are we doing it this way? Why are we hiring this firm? Why are we using this software? Why, why am I listening to you? Why don't I work somewhere else? You know? um, and this is good because it keeps, it, 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 it keeps people focused on why are we doing what we're doing? What are, what are the justifications? Now, the thing about questioners is that's very good, but like all strengths, there's weakness. And what can come from that, that can be a little something to deal with, is um, they sometimes can drain and deplete other people with their questioning. Um, and they can also seem uh, uh, undermining or uncooperative or like not team players because they're asking too many questions. Um, and, but they don't mean it that way. They just need to understand in order to, to, go, to get with the program. So it's very helpful to realize that. Another thing to remember about questioners is they sometimes, not always, but sometimes can suffer from analysis paralysis. They love information, they love doing research, and they, don't, they postpone making decisions because they want perfect information. Well, sometimes you can't have perfect information. So as a questioner, you need to be able to limit that. Or if you're working with a questioner, limit that. Obligers. A very, this isn't like maybe if everything in, that I wrote about in Better Than Before, this might be the most important takeaway. If you're an obliger, or if you work with an obliger or are at home with an obliger, and you almost certainly are because it is the biggest tendency, the key, the solution, the answer for meeting an inner expectation, because obligers are frustrated because they can't meet their inner expectation, is outer accountability. If an obliger has outer accountability, they will fulfill. So the, the, the mission is to figure out how do you plug in the outer accountability to the inner expectation to allow the obliger to follow through. So my favorite example of this is a woman who wanted to get up earlier, but she lived alone. A little bit of a challenge. What's the outer accountability for somebody who lives by herself? So what she did is she used the social media management platform Hootsuite to post an embarrassing Facebook post that posts automatically every morning at 8.15 a.m., unless she gets up early to disable it. <laughs> Brilliant. 
Usually people start accountability groups. There's a, there's a uh, starter kit on my site um, where, for starting an accountability group because you just need somebody to hold you accountable. You don't even all have to be working on the same habits. It's just the idea of mutual accountability. Um, that can be very, very powerful. Here's an important pattern to recognize about obligers. That they will, they, sometimes what happens is they fall into an obliger rebellion, which is they meet, meet, meet expectations, and then suddenly they snap. They're like, this I will not do. I'm putting my foot down, and I'm not going to do it. Now, sometimes this can be symbolic and kind of funny. Like, weirdly, I've heard from several obligers who do the very same thing. They had a coworker who would nag them about being late, and so they now stay in the parking lot in their cars until they are late to go in there and be like, you know what? I've had it, you know, like this. Um, so that's small and symbolic, doesn't really matter. But then sometimes people will do something like blow up a relationship. Um, obligers are often very, very valuable um, employees. And so you don't want somebody to meet, meet, meet expectations without complaining and then all of a sudden just quit because they've had enough, because they're burned out, they're resentful, and that can happen with obligers. So we all need to be watching for that so that we help obligers not get into that place of deep resentment and burnout so that then they just, th they just say, you know, I've had it, I'm done, uh, I'm out of here. And then finally, rebels. So rebels, rebels will do what they want to do. And this can be good, and this can be a little bit annoying. Um, because they will do what they want to do. Not because you tell them to do it, not because they're supposed to do it, not because this is the way it's always been done. They're going to do it because that's what they want to do. They always want to act from choice and freedom. They want to express the way that they are. Now, and with some rebels, this can become a bit of an issue because you might accidentally trip that instinct for resistance without meaning to. For instance, you might walk up to somebody and say, like, oh, read this book. You've got to read it. You'll love it. I'm not going to read it. I hate it. <laughs> um, or... Uh, hey, honey, tell Aunt Jane you had a lovely time. I'm not going to. You can't make me. You know, that child might be going right there to be polite. Over and over, rebels, especially rebel children and teenagers, will say to me, I want to do these things on my own. But then my parents tell me to do it, and then I won't do it. You know, like they're making me not do it, because that's the thing about a rebel. Sometimes they won't do something even if they want to do it, because they can't do it if someone is telling them to do it because this desire not to be controlled is so strong. Now, in fact, sometimes rebels can be controlled by this desire not to be controlled. So like I talked to a woman who, uh, who had a rebel husband and she wanted him to quit smoking. So I emailed her with like all these ideas of how you might tap into the rebel, the rebel identity. They're hating, they're hating of being trapped and controlled. Um, you know, and I was like, oh, you could say things like, oh, you know, Big tobacco's got you right where they want you. You're just pouring money into their pockets. You'll never get free of them. You know, that's like a nightmare for a rebel. But she told me, so I gave her a bunch of ideas, and she said, oh, well, she wrote me back. She said, really, the thing that worked was that my 18-year-old son went in and said, an old guy like you could never quit smoking. You've been addicted too long. And he's like, I'll show you. And he quit. Um, but so rebel, it, it can be very powerful, very free. It can be very exciting to be around a rebel. Um, because they are so in touch with what they want, but it can be tricky, because if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And here's the, the last observation I would make, and then we'll have questions, is um, very interesting pattern. If a rebel is in a long-term relationship, romantically or also like partnered at work, it's very often with an obliger. This is a very, very striking pattern. Almost always a rebel is with an obliger, because... Um, an obliger is kind of excited by the rebel's willingness to... They both, both they share this feeling of being resisting outer expectations, or, or, or resisting inner expectations. And so because the, the rebel is willing to say, like, come away, we don't have to do what they say, come on. Um, it's very exciting for an obliger. Um, and, um, but it's got its downsides, too, because if you're partnered with somebody who only does what they want to do, and is very likely to resist if you ask or tell them to do something, that can be, that can, that can be a challenge. Um, and by the way, if you want to take a quiz, usually people can tell right away what they are, but um, if, if you want to take a quiz on my site, GretchenRubin.com, there is a quiz that you can take that will like, kick out an answer and give you a little, a little report on your tendency. Um, but the last thing I would say is, you know, having spent all this time thinking about happiness and habits, 
I really do think that it's worthwhile for just about anyone to take the time to think about themselves, their own nature, um, what their values are, what their interests are, and to think about how to bring that into everyday life, how to build the habits that are going to reflect that. Um, because habits, they really can help us build the lives that we want. And when we change our, our habits, we can change our lives. So thank you. How can you counteract the bad habits that might have been acquired during adolescence? Well, that is an excellent question, and that's really what I seek to answer in Better Than Before, which is really to say, like, if, okay, let's say you want to, you know you just eat bad food. You know you don't eat healthily, and you really want to tackle that habit. How do you do it? Now, to me, like, the fact that it, the fact that it kicked in during adolescence, I wouldn't worry about that so much. Like, I, 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 I wouldn't make a distinction in my, when you're trying to change it. I think what you do is you look, at what the, you look at whatever the behavior is that you want, and then you use as many strategies as you can in order to make that habit get cemented in. So for instance, one of the habits, one of the most powerful and, 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 and universally applicable habits, because as I said, some of these habits don't work for everybody, um, and they're not always available to us at all times, but one, one strategy that is super effective, almost uncannily effective, is convenience. And the twin strategy, which is the strategy of inconvenience, which is you want to make it as convenient as possible to eat healthfully and as inconvenient as possible to eat unhealthfully. So if you don't want people to eat potato chips, don't have potato chips in your house. I don't know how many people are saying, like, how do I control it? I'm like, don't buy it. You know what I mean? That's like makes it really hard. Because if somebody's going to be like, get in the car and go drive to get their chips, okay, well, they really want those chips. But if it's in the cupboard... Then you really are setting yourself up for, like, I'm getting into the, you know, um, now, later, decision-making, this kind of thing. So convenience and inconvenience. Um, and, uh, it, I mean, it, it just so depends. Like, maybe a person should be an abstainer, maybe they should be a moderator. Um, but something like eating breakfast. Uh, and another thing like, to eating breakfast, one of the most powerful strategies, it's, again, it's, it's crazy crazy, crazy strong, is the strategy of other people. Really, the strategy should be its own book. Because we are so influenced by other people's habits, and they are influenced by our habits. And we're kicking back habits all the time. And I challenge you, if you really start thinking about your habits, see if you don't see that you have a habit that you picked up from somebody's casual comment. You know, just some little thing somebody said, and people will just go off. We're so susceptible. Organizations, of course, you're in an organization that's going to have enormous implications for your habits. So something like if you want, if you want uh, someone to eat healthfully, you eat healthfully. You know, begin with yourself. I know some people are like, oh, yeah, I want my kids to eat a healthy breakfast. I'm like, well, do you eat a healthy breakfast? No, I have a cup of coffee. I'm like, well, you're just training them to think that's what grown-ups do. Grown-ups have a cup of coffee. Like, only little kids sit down with their, you know, scrambled eggs and bacon. Um, so you want to model that. So there's a lot of things that you can do. Um, and that's what I try to lay out all the different things, depending on kind of what angle you're trying to... Um, trying to tackle it. And then I think you want to take their tendency into account, too, because you would speak to an upholder very differently than the way you would speak to a questioner and very different from an, an obliger and very different from a rebel. Yes? So the question is sort of like, how do I figure out like, what level of, how deeply engaged you get? You know, that's a very good question. I, don't, I have never consciously thought about it. So I'm glad to hear that I'm doing it well, because I haven't thought about it. I don't have a, I, I should have like a philosophy of that. Um... But I'm, I think I'm fortunate because my subject is one where, in, the, in a way, it's very limited and targeted, but on the other hand, it's huge. So happiness is very specific, but it's also gigantic. And same thing with habits. And so it's sort of like there's a lot for me to say, but so I don't have to get into all that. So, but thank you very much. I'm so, ha I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Well, I'm glad you pointed this out because it's like this new thing that I have so much fun with, which was every week on my Facebook page, I post a picture of the books that I have read that week. And, the, and, and I, as I read about it better than before, one of my, my newer habits is that if I don't like a book, I don't finish it. This was like a revelation to me. Because I felt like, a real reader finishes every book. I was like, no, a real reader has more time for good books when she stops reading books she doesn't enjoy. Um, and so if, I, if, so if I post it there, it means I enjoyed it, because I enjoyed it enough to finish it. And I love it. And many people accuse me of lying about how much I'm reading. They're like, I just simply don't believe that she's read that many books. I'm like... I'm not lying. Why would I lie on my Facebook page? And also, like, if I were going to misrepresent, I wouldn't pick these books. I mean, they're obviously kind of eccentric. Um, 
And so, but one of the things when I was trying to do, I, it, 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 I still don't understand it. I do not understand when I have time to read. I don't understand when I read. I, it, it is mystifying to me because I feel like I never read. Unless I, like, like last week I flew to Vancouver and back in two days. Then I got a lot of reading done. But in a general week, I feel like I'm not getting any reading done. And yet I do read books. And I, and I tried to do a time log. You know, um, This is something that people really, and I've read so much research about how valuable it is to do a time log. It drives me insane. I have never successfully kept a time log for more than an hour. Um, so I don't even, I, so I don't really know when I do read. Um, but, and yet I do, I do read those books. And you could say to me, like, well, let's, let's have a little quiz here and see what your comprehension is, Gretchen. Um, and so, but I don't know. And I always, but I do spend a lot of time trying to think about how to make enough time to read. Because and, 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 I feel like for a lot of people, reading feels like a luxury that often gets crowded out, even though it's so wonderful. And that's one reason I think it's great to be in a book group. Um, because then you do, a lot of people, that works really well for obligers. If you were an obliger and you never get any reading done, and you say, oh, why don't I ever read? I love to read. Join a book group where they are really serious about making sure, like, you really have to read the book. And there's, like, no tolerance. Because then you'll read, because you have that outer accountability. Yeah. Um, I have a 16-year-old. I have a 16-year-old and a 10-year-old. Um, my 16-year-old has her physics exam tomorrow, so I was just FaceTiming with her. Um, uh, you know, well, a lot, of, a lot of what I do is is great because I can do it anywhere, and I and I like my deadlines are either totally self-generated, like I write a blog post just about every day, but that's on me. And as an upholder, I don't find that hard. But if there's some day where I can't do it, um, I'm only accountable to myself. And, um, or I have a, a book deadline, which is like two years away. So I have a lot, I have a lot of flexibility. Um, and uh, so, so I, um, I, it works, yeah, it work. I feel very fortunate that I get to sort of work really intensely, but also you know, pick up my daughter from school or whatever. Ooh, what's the hardest habit for me to break? <sighs> Losing my temper, which is, that's kind of like, you know, when I talk about habits, I'm really talking about concrete habits. I'm not talking about nervous habits. I'm a crazy hair twister, and I have been my whole life, and I don't even try to stop. Love hair twisting. Um, and, um, or, and I don't talk about habits of mind, which is things like pessimism. Losing your temper is kind of like right on the edge. But so I have, I have, I've changed many habits that I thought contributed to me losing my temper. So I make sure that I eat enough. I make sure that I get enough sleep. I, you know, I, I like have so many behaviors that I try to control in order to keep my temper. Um, but that's the thing that probably causes me the most, like I just think, ah, why did I, why did I say that, you know, or like with my little kid, you know. Or we've got a new puppy, you know, we thought he was housebroken, but, you know. And my, my, well, accidents happen, and I'm like, what? Why did you know? You knew he had to go out. He just had his water. What? You know, whatever. It's like, okay, you don't need to overreact. So that's probably one of the ones that I've had the most trouble with. Yeah. Ah, that's a very good question. Okay, so how did I figure out what habits I needed to change in order to influence my temper? So really, losing your temper is an, is is a an issue of self control, self command. And it makes sense that I would be very preoccupied with this because, of course, an upholder value is. Self-command, very high, very high upholder value. And so I just thought of everything that, that I thought could contribute to it. Now, in the strategies, one of the strategies is called the strategy of foundation. And I work a lot on the strategies, uh, on, on the aspect of foundation, because these are the areas of life that go directly to self, self-mastery. So I spend a lot of time on these four. One is eating and drinking. So you want I always try to make sure that I've eaten enough and also... Um, drinking. I mean, the reason that drinking is fun is because it lowers inhibitions. But, oh, by the way, that is not going to do great things for your self-mastery. Um, uh, another is sleep. It's very hard to have self-mastery when you haven't had enough sleep. Now, I've always taken sleep very seriously, but now I am like a serious sleep zealot. Um, and this is one of the things I do with my children. Like, it's really important to get enough sleep. And so I'm very, I'm like really prize that. Uh, in fact, if you listen to my podcast... Um, my sister told the story, which to me, I was like, I, I don't even understand why this is interesting. Um, I went to, uh, my daughter and I, we, we were in, uh, on the West Coast visiting my sister for the President's Weekend. And, um, I, and, and my husband and my older daughter couldn't go for a variety of reasons, so it was just me and my younger daughter. And, uh, and I decided that we were going to stay on East Coast time. 
So we ate dinner at like 4.30 and went to bed at like 7.30 because we were only going to be there for two nights and then we were going to fly back. And I was like, oh, it's just going to be, and I, like, I hate staying up late and having dinner when I'm so tired, blah, blah, blah. To me, this seemed like, okay, fine. Like, what's up with that? And my sister, like, at the time said nothing. And then, like, on the podcast, she was like, that was so crazy. Like, what were you doing with that? And I was like, really? Like, to me, that seems so normal because a person needs their sleep. So I am a little bit hardcore about that. Um, uh, exercise. Now, exercise, we all know this, but it's true. Exercise is like the magical elixir of life. It calms us down, but it also energizes us. And so I really make an effort to, like, to, to, to work out and everything, but then also to look for little ways to just exercise throughout the day. Like if I'm on the phone, I always stand up. Um, or I try to run down the stairs instead of walking down the stairs. Um, because exercise also gives that like, a boost of alertness and self-mastery. And then finally, this, back to this clutter clearing, which I mentioned. For a lot of people, there's just this weird connection between clutter and a feeling of disorderliness in their behavior. And I know for myself, and I'm also, one of the distinctions I talk about in the book is abundance lovers and simplicity lovers, because abundance lovers love to be in places that have like a lot going on and a lot of buzz, and there's music playing, and there's stuff on the walls, and there's choices. Um, And simplicity lovers like quiet and like bare walls, empty shelves, few choices. And I'm definitely like that. And if I walk into a room and it's really messy, and there's music playing. Like, I can feel myself getting overwhelmed and, and short-tempered, you know? Like, I, will, I am the killjoy who will walk into a room where there's music playing, and, like, unthinkingly, I will walk over and turn it off. Because I can't, it's, like, too much for me. I can't handle it. And so part of it is I've realized, like, so I work on those four, because that's the strategy of foundation. Those go right to self-mastery, and so those are going to help you keep any, or certainly help me keep all my other habits. Yeah. So the question is, do I ever like give up on a habit because it, it just isn't or working, people or people in general? Yeah, no, I mean, and I think this is this is like a this is a very tricky thing with habits because I think, on the one hand, we want to persist with something even if it's challenging if we think that there might be benefits that will be awaiting for us, you know, at a certain point. But then on the other hand, you don't want to spin your wheels and, and put a lot of time and energy and effort into something that is just not working for you. And that line is very hard to define. And also, there's kind of a loophole, too. Well, one of the strategies is the strategy of loophole spotting, which is there's 10 categories of loopholes, and we're constantly looking for loopholes to let ourselves off the hook. You know, it could be the, you know, the concerned brother loophole. Oh, I've got to eat this brownie because he made it for me. Uh, it's going to hurt your feelings if I don't eat it. Or, you know, the tomorrow loophole. It doesn't matter what I have today because tomorrow I'm going to be so good. Um, the, uh, you know, planning to fail loophole. Oh, well, you know, uh, I just, I, I went over, I drove across town to go to this gourmet store to buy broccoli. <gasps> Ooh, but who can resist their, you know, uh, their brownies or whatever. There's 10 categories of loopholes. We can use them all the time. So you want to know that, you want to reassure yourself that you're not using a loophole and letting yourself off the hook too, too early. But then on the other hand, you don't want to waste your time. And I face this with meditation. Okay, I'm like this happiness expert who never meditates, which is like, you know, you got, you, that's like, you got to have your cred. you got to meditate, right? That's what everybody says. So I was like, so I tried it once, didn't work. Okay. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to try it again. I'm going to make it a habit. I'll tie it into the habit. Now, so here's the thing. Partly because I'm an upholder, I'm sure. It was pretty easy for me to get into the habit of meditating. But it did nothing for me. It just was like slowly making me crazier and crazier. Um, and at a certain point, I was like, do I let this go? You know, at what point do you say, this is not right for me? Or, 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 you know, but then people who I respected would say something like, the fact that you're having trouble meditating is just all the more evidence how desperately you need it. And you should be sticking with it. And like, if you would just try this app, or you go to this class, or you do it this other way, it's all going to work out. So it was really a question for me. Like, at what point do you decide? And I think it's very hard to decide. Because you want to, you want to stick with things that are challenging sometimes. But you also don't want to do something. Now, one of the things about the 21 strategies is I think sometimes when you, if you really want to change a habit and you really can't change a habit, maybe you've set it up in the wrong way. And so you need to think about a different approach. So again, like if everybody tells you that if you just have three bites of ice cream every night, you're going to satisfy your sweet tooth and then it's going to be fine. And then every night you find yourself eating a pint of ice cream, it's not working for you. So try something different. You know, if you're marathoners and sprinters, I'm a, this has to do with work pace, habits of work pace. So marathoners like to start early and work slowly and kind of have a long lead time. They feel like that's what unleashes their creativity and productivity. 
Sprinters like to work right up against the deadline. They feel like that's what makes them creative. That's what gives them their ideas. They like that adrenaline. They like that crunch, the intensity. If they start too early, they burn out. Well, but people are constantly trying to change each other. You know, marathoners tell sprinters they're doing it wrong. Uh, my sister, who's a TV writer, worked for a, a, a showrunner. A showrunner is like the boss of the, t of the TV writers. And he was a sprinter, and he really, he really believed that's how people did their best work. So he would artificially engineer situations so that they would be sprinting towards an emergency deadline. And it drove my marathoner sister crazy, because that wasn't the way that she works best. Um, and so sometimes, like, if you're like, well, I keep trying to start my annual report in May, but I just can't do it, and I'm wasting all the time, it's like, okay, well, maybe that doesn't work for you. Maybe you have to have a different habit. Maybe something else is going to work for you. Um, so I think sometimes if you're failing, it's a sign, like, you need to, you need to change your approach. Maybe your, the underlying habit, or you can reach your aim, but you have to go about it in a different way. So the question is about my writing process, like when do I decide to put something out in the world and how do I gather information? And I have to say I have like a pretty, a pretty primitive approach, which is a lot. Like, and I often will get interested in things. Um, I was recently obsessed with Thomas Merton. Um, I know a lot about Thomas Merton. Um, and, and they kind of don't lead anywhere. And so it's not that, like with the Happiness Project, that was just going to be me doing my own research. I didn't think that I was starting to write a book until I had been doing a lot of research, and then finally I was like, wow, this is, this is a big, big, big subject. Um, and so a lot of times it comes that way. Like, I'll be, like, uh, I, was, like I wrote, my first book was Power, Money, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide. Oh, that was a wonderful book to write. And, and, and doing it, I, was, I became increasingly interested in Winston Churchill. And, um, and I remember being in a cab with my husband one day and saying, you know, you could write a book about Winston Churchill that made him look like a hero. And you could write an accurate book about Winston Churchill that just made him look despicable. And he said, you could write a book like that. And I was like, boing, I'm going to write that book. Because I was obsessed with Winston Churchill at that point. All I wanted to do was sit around and write a book about Winston Churchill. Um, so a lot of times that's what it is. It's like I'll just become obsessed with something, and then I'll start kind of taking notes against my will. And then, and then I end up taking, then I'll have like 500 pages of notes. And, um, and then I start having themes emerge, and I don't even organize them by subject, my notes. I use word search um, to find what I'm looking for. And like the process of going over and over the notes itself is sort of teach, there's sort of a serendipity with that. Um, and then a couple times, but one book has led to another book. Like right now, I'm writing a book about the four tendencies, and that came about because um, I was really interested in the four tendencies, but it's just one little piece of the habits book. And, uh, and, and I couldn't allow it to take over. And, um, and, I, and I was like, oh, I thought it was a big idea. But you don't always know what people are going to respond to. Like, it's, that's one of the things that's nice about having a blog is you can put an idea out there. Like, when I found out I was an abstainer, I was like, me and Samuel Johnson are the only ones. It turns out, then I put it on my blog. I'm like, no, this is like half of America is an abstainer, you know? We didn't know it. Um, but so with this, like, I got so, I've gotten so much response about the four tendencies. Like, deluge with email, um, and when I speak, a lot of questions, and people asking very specific questions, like, I have a rebel child who's going to drop out of high school, what do I do? Um, I'm driven crazy by my questioner husband, we can never make decisions, what do I do? Or here's one, somebody said to me, I only want to hire obligers, can you tell me how to screen for that during the hiring process? <laughs> and I was like, I don't think you mean that in a nice way, so I'm not going to tell you. Um... You know, so sometimes one idea will lead to another idea. Um, and I just put it out there when I feel like, when I'm just, when I feel like there's enough to say. Um, but that's one of the things I love about having a blog, is it's like, it, it, it's, it's a way to have ideas. And I can only really think by writing, and so sometimes I'll have, a, I'll have an idea, sort of, and then in writing it, my, I, I, it will become clear to me. But then at that point, then I can see what other people say. So it's, it's been a wonderful thing for me. Um, yeah. Um, the question is the curse of knowledge, which is, is a problem where when people, when you know something, it's hard to remember what it's like not to know it. This is a problem with technology designers, because they're like, they forget that not everybody knows how to use all the buttons on the remote already, and so they're like confused when you add that other row of buttons that seems like it does the same thing as the other buttons, and yet it doesn't now. Um, I don't know, you know, one of the things, I'm very, very interested intellectually in the challenge of how do you make ideas accessible to people? How do you take complex ideas and make them, uh, and present them in a way that is simple? So every time that I write something, I try to take something that's huge and make it 
small and, and, and something that people can understand readily. And so I feel like I think about that constantly, which is like, what is the jargon that people might not know? What are the references that might not be, might not be familiar to people? How, do, how can I present this in a way so that it will be um, immediately understood? And I have to say, back to Winston Churchill, um, I learned a huge amount about language from Winston Churchill because no one had a fancier uh, vocabulary than Winston Churchill, and he could really lay it on when he wanted to. But when he wanted to deliver a message, he took it all the way down. You know, we will go on, we shall go on to the end. You know, and then it's, you know, you're right there with him. And so I make a big effort with my language to avoid jargon and academic, you know, falling into academics. I was trained as a lawyer, so, I mean, I got that going against me. Uh, for sure, and I have to like write that out over and over and over again. So the question is, how did I leave law and become a writer? How did, how did I decide to do it, and how did I make the transition? Um, you know, it, it was like a long, weird process. Um, one more? After this. Okay, this will be the last question. Um, and uh, so, you know, looking back on my life, I would say that I had done everything that a person would do to prepare herself to be a writer. You know, I was an English major. I always wrote papers um, whenever I could. Um, and, uh, but I didn't really see what kind of writing I would do. Like, I didn't want to be a journalist. I didn't want to be an academic. I didn't want to write novels. I didn't want to write plays. So I didn't really have a sense of how I could be a writer. Um, and I went to law school for all the wrong reasons, right? Like, the, the, what do you do? Oh, it'll keep my options open. It's a great education. I'm good at research and writing. I can figure it out later. I can, well, I'll take the LSAT. Who knows what will happen, right? And then, you know. Um, and, uh, and I had an amazing experience in law school and, and, and like, clerking for Justice O'Connor, so I don't regret it at all. But I went into it not mindfully. Um, but when I was clerking, a couple things happened at the same time. One was I went, I had this weird epiphany because I went over, like I said, I get obsessed with things and will do a lot of research and take a lot of notes. And at this time, I had become very preoccupied with what became my first book, Power, Money, Fame, Sex. Like, to me, these ideas were linked together, and I was doing all this research for fun in my free time. And I went over to a friend's house who was in education graduate school, and she had all these, like, thick books lying around. And in a very dismissive tone, I said to her, Ugh, is this what you have to read for your program? And she said, yeah, but that's what I read on my own anyway. And I thought, man, I want to do for work what I do for fun. You know, because the thing about law is I did everything I had to do to do an excellent job and not one minute more. Um, and I thought, that's what I want. Now, and I had, you know, my sister was a professional writer, so I had somebody very close to me who was a writer. Um, and I was very fortunate because I had an idea. I, I had a subject, which is a big, big problem in writing, which is that you need to have a subject. So I had my subject. And, and I finally got to the point where I thought, you know, that, well, I would rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. You know, and, and, and I had to seize the moment. My husband and I were moving from D.C. to New York, and it was like, if I don't do it now... You know, when am I going to do it? If I get another job in law, I think it's going to be really hard to try something else. And I also had this weird epiphany because, um, and this is a great question if you're thinking about your own happiness. A very uncomfortable but revealing question to say to yourself is, whom do I envy? We do not like to experience envy. It's like one of the most uncomfortable emotions. But it's enormously illuminating. And what I realized is that when I was reading those college reports, you know, that you send, like, about well, the alumni notes, when I read about people who had cool law jobs, I felt a kind of mild interest. And when I read about people who had cool writing jobs, I felt sick with envy. And so I finally thought, you know, I got to try this. And I was fortunate in that everybody in my life was very supportive of it. I, I would have been much harder for me if, like, my parents had really argued against it um, my husband was also leaving law at the same time, and there was this wonderful day where I, you know, we, we got our note from, our bar, from the bar, the New York bar. It's expensive to join the bar. I mean, uh, like, to pay your bar fees. It's like a lot of money. And so I said to him, what do you think? Should we pay our bar fees? He's like, no, we're not paying our bar fees. And I was like, okay. See, he's a questioner, and I'm an upholder, so that's, I have to ask him, like, do we have to do this? We don't have to do that. Um, and so then, and, and so, and I literally got a book from the bookstore that was like how to write and sell your nonfiction book proposal, and I followed the directions. 
Um, and, you know, worked my contacts to get an aid, to try to meet with agents, show them my book proposal. And um, looking back on it, it's all kind of magical how it came together. At the time, it felt incredibly arduous and scary. Um, but but um, th that's how I did it. So thank you all so much. And thanks so much to the library for hosting this. It's so wonderful. That's it for this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Gretchen Rubin spoke at the Seattle Public Library Central Library on January 19, 2016. Thanks again to Anna Tatashev for our recording. Tune in again soon for more from Speakers Forum.